Redemption Church, happy birthday, we're 11. It's cool, man. It's cool. It's like 11. We know that we're going to go through a growth spurt now, which is great. Our voice is going to begin to change. We're going to smell a little bit maybe, but you know what? It's okay. It's like that's the progression of growth. Now, the question becomes, what do you give the church on their birthday that has everything, right? Like you guys are awesome. You get it. You dig Jesus. You want to advance his kingdom, his cause, his heart, and his passions for the world. You want to show people that life is better with him. Like you guys are awesome at so many levels, but the one thing you're still missing is a building, right? Like, you're like, that's the thing I would love for my birthday. Well, you're not going to get it for your 11th birthday, but we're really hoping that for your 12th birthday, that's what's going to be coming down the pipeline. Now, to do that, we had this recent challenge. It was this goal that we were trying to hit of $750,000, and we set ourselves a seven-week time period to do that. So raising three-quarters of a million dollars in seven weeks that's some heavy, heavy lifting, right? And so we've been tracking it on the app and things like that. And I want to let you know that you accidentally broke the app as a church because the total that came in was 808. Yeah! Look at you guys buying your own birthday present. That's fantastic. So anyway, very cool. Thank you. Thank you so much to everybody that was a part of this. It's incredible to see what's going on. And uh, hopefully in the next week to two weeks, we're going to have a little bit more update on things because we're still kind of getting things pulled together, working with the city, the builder, and everything else. But it's exciting times. And so... Thank you genuinely from the bottom of my heart because every time these things happen, it's like God is just doing a work in me that reminds me that, Matt, you got to work on this pessimism of yours, man. I'm going to try to beat that stupid out of you. And so God's always doing it to me, and I'm still always pushing back, and he's like, I'm patient with you. I've got grace and mercy for you, Matt. So you all are a part of really bringing humility into my life more and faith and just belief. And so thank you for that. I am truly, truly blessed to be a part of this church. Now, with that, today is also an exciting day for our birthday because it's a start of a brand new series. It's going to start today. It's going to carry us all the way into the holidays, basically Thanksgiving-ish, and then we're going to do Advent this year because we love doing Advent. But the current series is this idea of Jesus meets real life, right? And and to me, this is something I get really excited about, right? Because... I love the Bible, I love doctrine, I love theology, I'm a nerd in that space, but I also love the Bible for the fact that it's down to earth, it's practical, it grants wisdom and guidance for all of the important elements of life. It doesn't talk about every single thing on every single topic that anybody could ever imagine, but it gives wisdom on the biggest, most important topics that seem to shape our lives. And so if you're with us this morning, and maybe you would say you're not a person of faith, uh, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're watching online right now, and you would say that's your space, man, I am super stoked that you are with us today. And I'm stoked because my heart is that I hope at least today, if you don't stick with us for the series, I totally get it. I'm just honored that you're with us today. But if you continue to maybe tune in or come or whatever else, that what you'll see is that the Bible isn't just archaic It isn't just old myths or wives' tales or whatever else, these things that sometimes get leveled against it, or that it's out of touch or it's impractical, but rather you'll see that, no, this actually does speak to the needs of my life. That's my hope for all of us today. And today, the topic that we are going to be tackling first off is this important topic of marriage. 
how Jesus meets married life, because I think that's really, really important. Now, for some, you might be hearing that topic and you instantly go, bro, listen, I'm not married. Why didn't you tell me I could be home ready for the 10 o'clock kickoff of the Seahawks against the Lions, you know? Like, like I, I, that's not my space right now. And I go, that's okay. You may not be married now, but one day you may be married. Or if you're a single person, you probably have married friends in your life, and sometimes those married friends are going to come to you and talk about their marriage, and you can have some wisdom to give. Maybe others of you say, hey, we're married, but things are solid. Man, we're in the best space ever. We're having the best time of our lives. And I go, man, amen, I love that. I, I, I'm so excited that you're in that space. And here's what I also know. You'll probably slip out of that gear at some point. Because we all do. We all do right? Uh, marriage kind of rises and falls, and we grow, and we learn, and we adapt, and we're challenged, and then we recover. It's like, that's the process. I know there's others of you right now that maybe you're like, my marriage is not in good space, or I just recently ended my marriage, and I'm trying to recover from that. And, and, and then from that, I say, man, I hope some of these principles today can help. And maybe others, just being really open, maybe you're like, my marriage is in a really bleak space, and I'll be perfectly candid. What I share today will not be enough for me to be that bleak space, right? So I get that. Like, I understand that I'm operating within kind of a mid-range today because there may be some watching or some in here where you're like, Matt, my marriage has physical abuse or deeply psychological abuse, and I get that what I'm saying today is not gonna cover those bases, and so I encourage you, which takes a very brave step to step out of yourself, to find the aid, the help, the support you need to deal with those weighty matters, right? This may not cover those things, but there are resources. And I encourage you, don't stay in a space that is destructive, that is damaging, that is violent, right? Like, though, this is just my job to get beat down. But find the aid that can hopefully bring healing in some capacity. That's my heart for all of us, right? So we're, we're dealing layers and stratas and stuff, but, but again, I understand that life can be really, really messy. So we're going to do our best as we go into this today. Now, as we do this, I'm going to pray, but before I pray, I want to just remind us that as a church, we do have an app. You can find that if you go to any app store and you just type in Redemption Church Duval, and in the app, uh, we always provide notes, and there's actually even questions after those notes. So if you want to follow along today, kind of keep uh, kind of a record of what we go through, that's a great tool to do that with. But I want to go ahead and get us settled for today. I want us to pray, and then uh, from there, we'll just dive into what Jesus has to say when it comes to him meeting us in our real life space of marriage. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I know as we talk about this, there are all sorts of different angles that come to listen to this today. Everything from things are solid to things are really coming to a conclusion in these relationships. And I ask for your grace. I ask for sensitivity. I ask for your spirit to work in the hearts of all people, married or unmarried, whatever it is, that we would all have something that you have to teach to us today. And from that, we will learn it, apply it, and live it out. Uh, because, man, we know that life is better with you. Living according to your ways brings a flourishing to life, even when there's decay around us. And so we ask for your grace today. We ask for your kindness and goodness. And we just pray for your strength. In your name, amen. Well, I have been a pastor for a long time. I've had the privilege of doing many wedding ceremonies, knowing a lot of couples, everything else. But by far, there is one couple that stands out head and shoulders above the rest as my favorite couple. 
And my favorite couple of all time, this is when they first started dating. Now people see this picture and they're like, that looks like your wife, Ellen, but who's the dude next to her, right? No, legit, that was me, man. I had like blonde curly hair, my sweet Cannondale hat. Like that was us. And that is little baby Matt at 16 and little baby Ellen at 15. So if you don't know our story, we were high school sweethearts. We met our freshman year started dating our sophomore year, and uh, dated all the way through high school, which eventually punctuated with this next picture right here. That is our wedding day. Uh, that's still me, by the way. That's not Ellen's first husband, and I came along later. That's, that's still me, right? And, and, and there, what's great about it is, you know, we, we, we're all this kind of high school sweetheart thing, and then uh, June 1st, 1990, we graduated from high school, that on June 4th, 1990, Ellen turned 18. And then on June 9th of 1990, we got married, which was good for me because otherwise I would have went to prison if it was a week before, all right? So like we were babies, right? We were just little kids, but we dug each other. Our families were supportive of everything else. And so we entered into that. And now here we are on top of the world and we've been married for 32 years, which is cool. Hey, thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll clap for that too. I clap for that for Ellen because she had the emotional maturity to keep this whole thing going since the beginning, right? And so 32 years married, 35 years together, and, and I still look, let's go ahead and use this next picture. I look and I go, my wife is timeless, and I'm timeful, all right? Like, like it's just so weird, you know? But, but it's been awesome. And honestly, I can tell you, matter of factly, I'm not just saying this because I'm a pastor and I'm paid to say the right thing. I legitimately dig my girl after all this time. In fact, I think I dig my girl far more today than even when we got married back in 1990. But in that time, I want to be also really, really candid. What I've learned over the course of those years is that if you want to just have a blast, a ton of fun, have the best relationship ever, here is a simple piece. If you just apply this, you will have that every single time. You find a person, you date that person, and in six months, you dump that person. Right? Just keep doing that cycle. Date, six months, then dump. Date, then dump. Date, then dump. And you will have a blast all the time. That relationship will always be easy. It'll be clean. It'll be bliss because you don't stick around for the rough parts. You don't stick around for the pain. You don't stick around for the challenge, right? But if you say, man, I want to become a better version of myself. I want to be shaped and molded. I want to grow. I want to develop. I want to stretch. Man, then my encouragement is get married. Get married. And in getting married, those vows that you made reflect on those and own those vows. Like every single day, own them, remember them, want to aspire to those things. And then in doing that, you can enjoy the fruit of your labors. But here is that critical component. Enjoy the fruit of your labors. See, just being real clear, um, I think sometimes we think it all just kind of comes together. But I have learned over the course of time, it's labor that brings the fruit. You're not going to have fruit apart from the labor. I say that because there's these myths that go around. Like one myth, and, and Ellen and I have heard this over the years from people, they'll say, you know what, you guys just got lucky. I'm like, you're right. So lucky. I've never met a couple that said, you know what, we've been together for 50 years, never put in any effort at all. 
It's just a cakewalk. We've never had any kind of debate difference. We didn't have to work through anything. It was just bliss all the time. I've never met that couple, ever. Or some people will say, well, here's the key in getting married. You gotta, you gotta marry the right person, right? Now, I agree. You can certainly marry the wrong person. That's possible. And almost every time I've talked to people that, that say that, they're like, I knew they were the wrong person before we got married. Like they knew that they were going into something that was instantly toxic before they ever said, I do. I know of people that are like on their wedding day, they're like, I know, I knew. I know of one person that literally went to their parents and said, I don't want to be here. This is wrong. But they're like, I'm stuck. And it lasted six months, right? But they knew that was the wrong person before it ever started. But the other part of that is I go, if you find the right person today, there is no guarantee they're gonna still feel like the right person 10 years down the road. Because also what I know is that we all grow. We all evolve over the course of time. Like Ellen has been married to three different Matts, right? And I'm going to be 52 in a few months, which means Matt number four is coming, right? And, and she's had to grow and adapt. And, and who Ellen was when she was 18 is different than who she was at 28 and 38. And I mean, she's stuck at 38, but I'm going to leave it there. So like, like, we all adapt and change. So this idea of just find the right person or get lucky, that's not how it works. How it works is there is labor to have fruit. There's things we must master in the context of marriage. And it starts with understanding kind of what we're up against. And what against kind of this tricky, challenging, deeply rooted three-letter word that starts with S. It's the S word that, that kind of gets in the mix and makes the challenge. It's the word S-I-N. If you thought sex, we know where your mind is. And we'll deal with that in a couple of weeks. And we'll deal with communication here real soon. So we're going to deal with other components that kind of merge into this idea, but we want to start here understanding how our sin plays a role in our marital crises, our challenges, our hardships, right? And I want to start by kind of giving us a sense of sin because that word, I'm always saddened how it gets used as a weapon, gets used as a tool of shame, gets loaded with all of this extra velocity and energy kind of meant to hurt a person. Like, you're a sinner, you're in sin, you're sinful, and it can have this tone that is so destructive, it doesn't get to the real root of what that word is all about, which at its core, it means to cross a line that has been drawn or to miss a goal that has been set. That's the simplified version of sin. So you have a goal, you don't hit it. You have a line, you cross it. And in marriage, then, when we take that simple definition and we don't try to put all this energy behind it, we know that that is always the challenge, right? And, and part of this is because day one, what did we do? We stood there with a, a pastor or a priest or a justice of the peace, whatever it was, and we made really lofty promises, Right? I've done this many times. I feel like, you know, these couples come in and they're just all gooey-eyed and in love, and I'm like, you don't even know what you're getting ready to pledge. Right? Because what do you say? I will love you. I will honor you. I will cherish you. And the conditions don't matter, baby. When it's good or bad, we're rich or poor, we're healthy or sick, I am in it to win it 100%. 
And then when you're going on your honeymoon the next day and you're in line for three hours with TSA and she forgot to pack something and the flight gets canceled and everything else and you already start to get a little bitey at one another, that reminds you of like, oh yeah, we set some pretty lofty goals. We drew some pretty sophisticated lines. And then you start to cross them. You start to miss them. You start to, to, to kind of fall short of the lofty. Now, don't get me wrong. The lofty's awesome. I love the lofty. But when we're honest about it, man, it's like every week we're missing our lofty goals. And, and the question in that is then kind of like, why, right? Like, why do we, we miss these targets that we said if they're really noble and really good and they have tremendous value and we all want to live up to those things, wh- what's the problem that we're dealing with? Well, I'm going to tell you exactly where we want to put the blame. The blame is set on nudist vegetarian hippies. All right? That's exactly where you should place the blame at the feet of a couple of nudist vegetarian hippies. And the Bible opens with this. So when you go all the way back to the very front of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, you see kind of the archetype of marriage. And in chapter 1, it's high orbit. It's like Google Earth from 30,000 feet. And then eventually in chapter 2, we click down to where we're looking at our neighbor's backyard to see what he's been building for the last three years, right? And you get really close to see what's going on back there. That's kind of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So in Genesis 1, high orbit, it starts this way. Then God said, let us make human beings and our image to be like us. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and govern it. So they're outdoorsy. They're hippies, right? They're earthy in this sense. They grab their REI gear. They get their Yeti cup. They're hanging out in the woods. That's what these people are to do. So they start out in this particular model. But what I love about this is it reveals some things about our nature and our calling. So in our nature, what's it say? That each and every one of us bear the image of God. He says, I endow you with my my value, my quality, my personhood, so you can represent me in this space, right? You can iconically be in a space that shows who I am. So everybody has dignity and value, right? And then it says he created them to be together collectively, Right? Male and female, them together in a unit with a sense of unity. And then the best part of this is that the creator creates creators. He says, I've created you so that you can go and create. So as a freebie for the whole thing, the very first command of the Bible is go get busy. Right? It's, a, it's an intimacy thing. It's a sexuality thing. It's a procreation thing. I think that's really interesting that that becomes the first command of the Bible. It's like, isn't this the good book? And I go, yeah, but it's a sexual book too. And we'll see that in this series here in the next couple of weeks because that's their first command, go and create. But then we kind of click down into the close-up in chapter two, right? We see our hippies are going out and they're living in the earth, and they're governing it, governing it. And then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, right? We're getting a close-up. And there he placed the man that he had made. So this is why I say they're vegetarians, right? They're in a garden, carrots, squash, the whole nine yards. And then the Lord God said, but it's not good for this man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. 
right? So you're starting to get this idea that God's like, I'm gonna customize this person for that person. So up to this point, Adam is just kind of chilling with the animals and God's like, do me a favor, name them while you're there. And he's like, okay, those are monkeys and those are aardvarks and that's a cat. And God's like, I didn't make that. Where did that come from? And you know, the whole thing is there, right? God's like, we gotta get rid of that thing somehow. It's like, now once sin comes, it's entrenched. It's what it is, right? So like, Love you, cat people. All right, so so it's not good he's alone, right? So what's it say? So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening, and then the Lord God made the woman from the rib and brought her to the man, right? And so now you, you have this coupling effect that's going to occur, and the man says, at last, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The monkeys in the aardvarks were fine, but this is way better. And I would call her woe man, because woe man. This explains why the man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And so what you have is this archetype or a prototype of what marriage is all about. So it's designed by God, it's given to be a complement from God, and they're united in oneness through God. Like all of that is what's happening. But then this next statement I think is so fascinating. It says, now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Nudist, vegetarian, hippies. Right? And, and, and you know, I, I look at this and, and there's a serious part, but there's a funny part too. I'm like, it's weird to think that if they would have not rebelled against God, we would still all be walking around naked, which would be super strange. I'm kind of pro-clothes now, so it's the weird part. So is this really just about nudity versus being clothed? Or is there something more deep? Well, I think it's more deep. I think there's this almost kind of illustrative or euphemism concept behind this that's saying they didn't have any baggage between them. They didn't have any secrets. They didn't feel the need to protect themselves from the other. They didn't try to shelter certain things or project. There wasn't pretense. There, there wasn't this sense of maybe kind of pensiveness, insecurities, or tender spots. Like, all of that wasn't there. It was like they could just be free to be them together, and it was just perfect connectivity. So they were emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically uncluttered. They were naked and unashamed, pure and open and honest. We live in a world of emojis, and I'm not a guy that loves emojis, but I know a lot of people use emojis. So if we use emojis for this, this is who they are right there. They're just kissy-faced, love between them. And, and I want you to follow where the arrows are in this, because I think this is the dynamic of what's going on, because they have uncluttered love at the start. And the essence of love is always the same. It doesn't change. It's always, I'm going to submit myself to you for your good. I'm going to come under you and celebrate you. I'm going to come under you and support you. I'm going to come under you and protect you. And so the man is doing this to the woman. The woman is doing this to the man. And it just cycles up. No, you. No, you. I love you. No, I love you. No, I love you more. No, I love you the mostest. Right? Like that essence. But far more deeply than maybe we can imagine. Right? That's their heart. And so they had this reckless, fearless connection. But then we move from Genesis chapter 2 to Genesis chapter 3. And when we do that, the, the soundtrack and the background changes. Right? It's from this really fun romantic comedy kind of upbeat thing 
to like dum 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 in chapter 3 because something comes between the husband and the wife and some of us will say yeah I know what becomes between them right it's a cosplayer from Slytherin that rolls in and causes trouble I go no it's not the serpent that comes between the couple this is what's really important to understand what we see is actually the couple comes between the couple they come between themselves in a very unique kind of way and when that happens there is this collapse in the nature of the relationship things get fractured very quickly so we kind of know the story right there's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil and i really believe that god was going to allow them to have knowledge and everything else over the course of time but he wanted to take them into that they weren't supposed to take that in their own time in their own way but they do and as soon as they do it says at that moment their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness so they sewed leaves together fig leaves so they could cover themselves right so again it closed in chapter two they're naked and unashamed now they're naked and ashamed and now they're covering up they're shielding themselves they're making sure that um that that they aren't at risk and so in that moment there's a break in their connection to god and there's a break in their connection with one another the harmony gets shot and so now there is self-consciousness self-preserving they're putting up layers pretense all of that stuff defensive blame casting can come into play so there is a there's a new nature to the relationship right a guarded disposition and so god rolls into the scene it's time for the afternoon walk they do this all the time god says well where are you let's come out let's stroll together and in verse 10 it says I heard you walking in the garden this is the man so I hid and I was afraid because I was I was naked right I was trying to self-preserve who told you that you were naked the Lord God asked have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat now God knows this is a rhetorical question right it's not like he's trying to figure it out too but he wants this man to be thinking and here comes part of the challenge then the man replied it was the woman that you gave me and gave it to me to eat the fruit, right? And then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And she said, it's the serpent that deceived me, right? And that's why I ate. Right there, you start to get the essence of the problem, right? So the husband gets cornered. God's like, what's up? And he goes, I'll tell you what's up. It's her fault. Because now he's covered. He's protecting himself right and so he's looking at her saying she's the one to blame and then he pulls an awesome scent in fact it isn't even she it's you you made her i was cool with the aardvarks and the monkeys and then you gave me this which i thought was cool at first but now look at the trouble we're in right she ate us out of house and home bro that's on her and so he's blaming her and then she's like whoa why am i to blame she points at like malfoy the serpent guy and she's like it's satan who's to blame and then the serpent's like well i don't have a shoulder to shrug or a leg to stand on yeah i'll take the blame whatever right like he's chill with that because he knows what he wanted to do he wanted to bring division right and it worked they came between one another that's the problem and so their unity turns to division their sense of help turns into blame and there is a massive breakdown and from this, God goes on to punctuate what will be the perpetual problem in all relationships for all time, specifically marriage. 
Genesis 3.16. So then God says to the woman, like, here's the fallout of the decisions. You will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And in that, you have to understand, it's not like good rule. It's going to be bad rule. Like, control isn't good. Here, rule isn't good. In other words, they're going to be in this spiral of trying to one-up the other. That's going to be the problem. And in fact, if anything, think about like Genesis 3.16, like the antithesis of John 3.16. Like John 3.16 is God so loved, he gives, he sacrifices everything to rescue. Where Genesis 3.16 is, we tend to so love ourselves, we put pressure on the other to perform to what we want. We want our way, our control, our thoughts to be the ones that went out. In other words, what you have in this passage is the kernel, the kernel of every disagreement, misunderstanding, friction point, every button that gets pushed, every abuse, separation, or divorce, whatever it is, it all has its start right here. Because what happens, and I know this by way of my experience, is you get into these spaces and then you want to control the circumstance. You want the other person to behave to suit you. I mean, I've done that to Ellen before. Like we have friction and I'm not thinking about how much I'm messing this up. I'm thinking about how she's kind of messing with my day. And if she would just do it different, it would solve everything. If she would perform to my expectations, if she would know my tender spots and just stay away from those, that would be fantastic. Right? All of that kind of is the problem, Right? just meet my desires, read my mind, that's the best one. Like, my wife should just know what I'm thinking without me saying it. My gruff, like, whatever's should be enough. Right? That's just kind of this control dynamic. And so the story starts off, it's not good that man be alone will make a helper. And then it ends with the story being like, I think I want to be alone because my spouse needs help. Like, that's the way it kind of shifts incredibly quickly, right? And so if this whole thing was in the happy emoji land world where they were designed to come under one another and serve one another, and it's lovey land, it eventually turns to poopyville, right? And I told Reese I would use a poop emoji just for her today. So this is for you, Reese, wherever you're at right now. But that's what happens. It could be kind of a bummer. It could be a drag. And, and, and again, what the dynamic is, is instead of coming under, there's this coming over. There's this wanting to control, wanting to dominate, wanting to get my way, and that creates the friction points. And so this is what saddled our marriages. And if we want to learn to work past these challenges, we need to then kind of learn to master some of the things that are important. And part of that is turning to the master who masterminded this whole thing to begin with, right? Like God created it, we broke it, but if we get back to thinking about how God made it and how we can learn through this, man, maybe we can master some of the things that are challenging so we can get back to that space as a couple of naked and unashamed. There's a heart there where I'm not guarded, protected, you know, kind of, again, trying to, to deflect things, but rather I'm owning and embracing and connecting. Now, like I said, in the coming weeks, we're going to deal with communication. We're going to deal with sex and marriage and everything else, and those are dynamics that come into this. But today, I think we can look at some principles and say, like, hey, if we do these things, we're going to start to do well. It won't always be perfect. We won't execute these in an ideal way, but they're tools that we can leverage to kind of work toward what we need to do. And so if you're taking notes this morning, the very first thing that kind of comes up is this idea of know what you need 
to want to get what you actually want. Know what you need to want to get what you actually want. I, I say this because oftentimes what a couple will say, like in a counseling environment, you say, what do you want? And they'll say, we want to be happy. We want a happy home. We want a happy life. We want a happily ever after. And I want to tell you, happy is rad. I love happy. But you can't build a marriage around happy because happy doesn't have concentration to it. Happiness is an emotion. It comes, it goes, it's purchasable, it's visitable, but it's not like this idea of has solid things in which you can develop the relationship around, right? So it's awesome when you enter happy, but you can fall out of happy really easy, right? So there's something else that we need to fight for more than just happy. But if you aim at happy, you say, no, that's just, that's our target. Well, I'm pretty certain then you're probably not going to experience what you seek. I think you have to aim at something else. But in aiming at the something else, you actually can have happy in the midst of that, right? So that's part of this, right? This other thing that we shoot for can produce happy, but if you shoot at happy, it probably can't sustain happy. You go, well, what's that thing that we need to then shoot for? Well, Jesus speaks to this. And I think it goes back to the essence of what God designed at the start of all things. So we see Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, and he's talking about marriage. See if this sounds like something we just went through. Jesus says, haven't you read the scriptures? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So, if you go, Matt, if happiness isn't the goal, what's the goal? Unity is the goal. The thing you want to fight for, the bullseye on the target, the lines you want to draw is unity. When you fight for unity, happiness can happen. But if you don't fight for unity, you're going to struggle for happiness. Because only unity has the, the, the kind of the wherewithal, has the might, has the gravity load, right? It has the mass in there to hold you in that space. But if you're not shooting for unity, you're probably not going to experience this happy condition. And I can guarantee you, I know this, man. Like Ellen and I, over the course of our marriage, we've had tough days, we've had tough weeks, we've had tough seasons, Right? Well, we're not on the same page. You get a little nippy, a little bitey, a little cold, whatever it is. And you know what doesn't turn that around? Going to happy hour. But it's happy hour. Wouldn't that make our marriage happy again? Right? Things are kind of stretched. So we're going to go to the happiest place on earth. We're going to fly to Disneyland, and after three days and $10 million later, we'll be happy. Right? We know that isn't true. You have to then do something different. You have to start putting in the hard work of the homework of harmony. You have to do things like say, you know what, I'm going to be vulnerable now. I'm going to be open. I'm going to really start to interact with you. I'm going to be intentional. And in that, I'm going to be, I'm going to believe the best as we're trying to work towards some kind of solution. I'm going to try to give it my all right now. I want to really re-coalesce with you. I want to put a relationship back on the tracks. I don't want to just simply get stuff off my chest. Because, can I tell you, one of the dangers, because I've experienced this firsthand, I go, I'm going to get this off my chest, and all I do is I throw it on Ellen's chest. And you know what that causes her to do? Oh yeah? Well, I'll throw it back with some extra. 
right? And, and so you don't want that to be your goal, right? Now, I know for some, you say, Matt, we're down a road as a couple that there is no way the two of us could, could be in that space to solve those problems, to reconnect with unity. Then I honestly encourage you, find a counselor, find a therapist. It's hugely beneficial, right? Because they don't have a dog in the fight in the same way. They're not here to pick a side. They're here to bring you together. And if you say, well, we can't afford to, to go see a therapist. No, you can't afford not to, right? If that's what's needed, man, go and do that. Because again, I know that reconnecting and recoalescing can be hard, but man, you're gonna have to seek unity if you want to experience happy. In fact, Psalm 133 says this, how good and pleasant, maybe you could say happy, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Unity creates those features. Those features don't create unity. Now, you might be sitting there kind of a skeptic, and you're like, okay, Pastor Fancy Pants, saying it just takes unity. How, how do we do that? How do we move in that direction? Well, it's the next thing in your notes. Embrace friction as your friend. Embrace the friction that you're experiencing as your friend. So when you feel distance or disconnect, when you slide into bed and it just feels icy, like you just know it's not right, when you're starting to talk to each other in one-word one, one word statements, like fine, okay, sure, whatever, uh, right? When those things are going on, when there's little jabs, right? The buttons are getting pushed, whatever it is, Here's what's happening right there. It's this next picture. It's all the lights on your dashboard flashing, right? It's letting you know that under the hood, there's a problem in that marriage. And here's the thing what happens. So often the lights are going off with like battery light, oil light, temperature light, engine light. And then we go, I'll just keep driving in the marriage. If I just keep driving, it'll go away. And I'm like, you're right. All the lights will go away because the car dies and blows up, right? So you don't want to just be like, well, just keep driving. We'll pretend like there's nothing there. I'll just keep my distance. They'll keep their distance and maybe it goes away. It doesn't go away. So you don't want to just treat it like that. And also you don't want to call up your mom and be like, can I tell you about my stupid car that never listens and doesn't pay attention and doesn't pursue me? That's not gonna fix the problem. No, you gotta pull over, you gotta pop the hood, and you gotta go, okay, there's stuff going on. We feel it. Let's be honest enough to address it. Ecclesiastes chapter eight, starting in verse one, says this. How wonderful to be wise, to analyze and interpret things. Not read into things, but to slow down, to be truly wise, and say, I, 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 we need to see what's going on in our marriage. We're clearly nipping at each other. We're clearly not happy together right now. So we need to slow down, because wisdom, that's going to light up a person's face. Wisdom is going to soften our harshness. Now again, we're going to talk about communication here in the near future, and so that's a part of this process. We can't say everything today. But, but this idea here is when things start to feel off, this is where we have to do our best to get kind of a grip on ourselves and turn our, our openness on, our empathy on, our compassion on, our object, objectivity on to some degree. We don't want to run to our death by when things are heated to just throw more gas on the fire. But rather we want to slow down, we want to think clear, we want to formulate a thoughtful reply. It's easy to wisecrack. <laughs> but it's tough to be wise, right? 
but, but that's what it will require, right? To analyze, and this is one that Ellen and I teach all the time in counseling situ situations, to analyze what the problem is as opposed to blame who the problem is. Because that's the temptation. Uh, you're the problem. No, between the two of you, there is a problem, and you need to take it out of yourselves and say, let's analyze the problem. Now, the problem might create dilemma between the two of you, and you feel like that other person's the problem, but realistically, we all know we're both kind of part of the problem. So let's take it out of ourselves, and we'll call it Steve. <laughs> and we'll say, this out here is the problem. Or call it Cat. That's even better. Cat's the problem. And how do we deal with cat, right? We want to make sure that we are interpreting attitudes and actions, but we're not, again, kind of reading into or taking offense at them. Because, again, a soft word will turn away wrath, right? And so we're striving for those things, right? It means you want to honestly solve the problems instead of stew over the perceptions of those problems. In fact, it's funny. I was reflecting on how many times with Ellen and I, something was spinning up, and I knew, I knew exactly what I could say that would decelerate it, and it would be done in three minutes. But I was a derp, and I decided I was going to say the dumb thing. And then hours later, we're still duking it out. Days later, it's still a friction point. Right, if I was just self-disciplined enough in my own skin, it would have been fine, but I jumped into things being dumb. And so it reminds me then of the next thing in our notes. If we really want to see things different, be the change you want versus want the other person to change. Right? It's the sense of self-ownership versus casting the blame and being done. And I say this because I think sometimes in marriage, we have these blanks that we fill in with statements, and, and, and they're very self-interested. So we say things like, you know what? Hey, uh, my marriage will be happy when they, my spouse, and then you have a blank that fills in. Uh, my marriage will be happy when they pay attention. My marriage will be happy when they finally listen, when they pursue me, when they care about me, when they're not so narcissistic, whatever it is. We love to fill in the blank about them. But what we need to do instead is say, hey, man, I want to take some ownership, and I know that my marriage will be happier when I, and we fill in the blank, when I learn to forgive, when I'm not so reactive, when I don't have expectations that I've never shared with them before, whatever it might be, right? This is the way we need to think about things. Um, when Ellen and I do counseling with couples, uh, one of the things we really work hard to not do is like, I don't sit down with the husband and tell him the five things his wife needs to fix, I don't do that. I, I tell him the things that he should work on, he can pursue, how he can be more like Jesus. Like, I focus on that. But I don't tell him, oh, and by the way, here's the things your wife should do. And there's a reason for that. It becomes ammunition. Like, he'll go home and get in the car. How did it go talking to Pastor Matt? Oh, great. He said, you should do this and this and this and this and this. It's like, oh, great. So we don't tell the other, or we don't tell the person what their spouse should do. We just focus on what they should do. Why? Because they need to want the change that would bring Union and bring healing. So you want to model that which you seek. Now, one of the things I think about with this is something Jesus says. It's one of his most well-known statements. It gets quoted by people, even misquoted by people, because it's so well-known. But I'm going to alter it a little bit this morning. So I confess, I am adding to the Bible today. Just a smidge. But it's to make the point, so we start to see this passage a little bit differently, and we think about how we can be guilty of what it is that Jesus is highlighting. 
So he's given the Sermon on the Mount. It's like this epic message about how the kingdom's different than the world. It's like this whole replacement ideology of living in a very different way. And in chapter 7, he says this, Do not judge, but let's add in your spouse. Do not judge your spouse, for you will not be judged by your spouse. And listen, just for a second, I'll tell you, I know this to be true. When I start putting pressure on Ellen, she feels pressured and wants to put pressure on me. So you create like like a tempo in the relationship of pressure. And I think at the core, it's judging. So don't judge your spouse and you will not be judged by your spouse for you will be treated or for you want to be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging, let's say your spouse, is the standard by which you will be judged by your spouse. And so when things spin up, man, and you kind of know, realize that what we're starting to do is we're starting to judge the other person. We say things like, you always, or you never, right? These really absolute statements. Or we say, you don't care, you don't listen, you don't pursue, you don't, you don't have interest in me, you don't pay attention, you don't slow down, you're not invested. Again, always kind of absolute and very kind of judgy. You're just like your dad, you're just like your mom, and we all know they were stupid. Right? These are the weak spots that we suffer from. And all of that blame casting in the end is just judging. I'm really convinced of that, that we're just kind of giving in to that. And so the solution is to start seeking unity, to take personal ownership and not be in that judgmental space. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, why worry about the speck in your spouse's eye when you have a log in your own? Now, I know some of you are gonna be like, Matt, but bro, you don't know. You've never seen my wife's redwood rage. It's tall, it's wide, it lives for a thousand years. You don't know. Or you've never seen my husband's aspen anger and aggression and arrogance. Right? You've never seen that. I go, you're right. I think there's some rotten things out there for sure in the lives of people. I absolutely think that. But I look at Jesus here and I go, man, what I all know is we all have judging junipers sticking out of our face. We all have a tendency to do that. And and we look at the other as being kind of worse than us, and then it creates a toxicity in the relationship. Also, it's not going to help anything, which is why Jesus says, how can you think of saying to your spouse, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye, when you can't see past the log in your own eye? That's just being a hypocrite. See, a judgmental spirit impairs our vision. It impairs our ability to see clearly all the things that are happening in the relationship. Therefore, Jesus says, first get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your spouse's eye. You're moving from critique to care. I've talked about this before. I've had to actually deal with a person with a splinter that got caught in their eyeball, right? And you're not gonna go in there and clobber it out. You have to be soft and gingerly and cautious and slow and caring, and that has to kind of be the spirit. If we're really gonna deal with things in our marriage, it cannot be just like, I'm gonna bludgeon you into something different and I'm gonna deal with that speck in your eye. No, we have to slow down, deal with our own biases and problems, and then we can caringly make the investment. Because if they don't sense care, then they're not gonna care. It's the only way we can be insightful is to have clear sight. But if we move into that space, we can retire our retaliation, we can refresh the relationship, and we can begin to stitch things back together. And to do that is the next thing in your notes. 
love in a way that expresses the verb to experience the noun. Right? Love in such a way that you express the action of love to experience the sense, the feeling of love. Because just as unity is the route to happiness, so too doing love is the route to then feeling love. Because I find that relationships have four different gears. The first gear is attraction, easiest gear of them all. You look across the room, you see somebody, and the biochemical impulses in your body go, they're attractive to me. Takes no work. You didn't even, you had zero will in that. You just, they're attractive. And then you go over and you meet them, and from that you might find whether there's the second gear, affinity. You might go, they're really attractive, but boy, they're odd. And then you move on to the next one that looks attractive. But then you find somebody with affinity, and you go, okay, now we're connecting, we're starting to do things. That shifts into the third gear, which is awkward. And and the awkward gear, this one's real simple. This is when you decide one day that you're going to say, I love you, right? With all that risk. And you don't know if you're going to get friend-zoned or get a response. I love you too, right? You just don't know. So it's kind of a freaky space to be in. But even there, as you're taking that risk to say, they say, I love you too. And you're like, oh, we love each other. Here's the deal. At that moment, you've fallen in love, right? But here's the problem there. Gravity does the work, man. You're falling in love. That doesn't take a lot of energy or a lot of effort. It's only when you move into the fourth gear, which is attentive, that that's the real test because attentive means I'm going to do love, even in the seasons where I may not feel love. So what does this look like? Well, it was our call to worship this morning. It was the passage that Amy read to us on the screen. I'm just going to read it a little different, because again, I want us to understand this for our context. It's about love, and Paul's writing to this church in Corinth, and they're very divided. They have no unity. They're picking sides. They're not looking out for one another. So it isn't just like some pie-in-the-sky, sweet little passage that he decides to write for no reason. No, he writes it because there's all these problems. And then he says, from this love is patient and kind, or as I like to read it, as I think about my relationship to Ellen, I need to think about me and say, Matt is patient and kind. If I'm really going to do love to Ellen, then Matt needs to be patient and kind. Matt needs to not be jealous or boastful or proud or rude, right? Because Matt doesn't want to demand his own way. Matt doesn't want to be irritable, and he doesn't want to keep a record of wrong against Ellen. He does not rejoice about injustice that is done to her. He doesn't like it when he wins the argument, even though he knew he was at fault in some way. No, rather, Matt rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Matt wants to bear all things toward Ellen, believe all things toward Ellen, hope all things toward Ellen, and endure all things toward Ellen, because Matt loving Ellen never fails. See, that's what love does. That's the real definition of love, which is servanthood and sacrifice and caring and investment. And in this definition, what we don't want to do is project this on somebody else, like like our spouse. Like, we don't want to be sitting there reading this and going, that is so great. I hope they're listening right now. It's like, no, this is so great. I really need to pay attention, right? Because you know what Paul does here? It's kindergarten easy, right? It's just so basic, so clear. It's so concise in just a handful of verses. But it is not a simple thing to execute. Not at all. I get that. This whole premise of love is beautiful and it's challenging, but here's what I know. All worthwhile things are worth it, but they're hard. Right? I've never seen a worthwhile thing that came easy to do. No, this is challenging and it's tough, but it pays off richly. In fact, I love something that Paul said in Ephesians. He said, Husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. 
For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. Uh, I call this the flywheel effect, and I've seen this when Ellen and I are in good spaces. It's like I'm focused on her well-being, and from that she focuses on my well-being, and so I care more about her well-being, and then she cares more about my well-being, and in a weird sort of way, the thing I most want is to feel love, and the way I most feel love is I give love. And when I give it, I tend to feel it more. Now, I get your story. Maybe I tried that. didn't work. You know, I, I know there's messy stuff out there, which is why we'll deal with messy in this series, too. But in my own life, I found more often than not that it's when I lose focus on this that things get off the rails. And so it reminds me, hey, man, I just got to make that investment again. Even if I don't feel loved in the moment, I need to make the investment of doing the loving thing. And then this reminds me of the final point, which is going to come real fast here. When it comes to our relationships and trying to execute this well, always let Jesus come between you and your spouse. Right? Always let Jesus come between you and your spouse. We tend to let other things get in the way, come between us. Work, money, kids. Which, by the way, your kids are going to grow up and leave, and it just leaves the two of you. Don't let your kids be between you. Let your kids be a part of what you do, but not between you. Right? In fact, I think about something that Paul talks about when it comes to the spirit of Jesus. Right? A thing that we want to always kind of remember in our own lives. He says in Philippians chapter 2, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourself. Thinking of your sp- spouse as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in them as well and others. And he says, let me simplify it for you. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Right? That's how we want to look at our relationship. We're like, hey, what would Jesus do? Grab that bracelet, put it on for your marriage. WWJD. We're starting to debate. We're starting to fight. We're starting to feel awkward with one another. We're starting to have some rough patch. What would Jesus have me do right now? Slow down. Ponder it. Ask him, Jesus, what do you want in my life? Because self-preservation always hurts. Selfless investment tends to free. And so I close this out with homework. And the homework I have is that all of us, in any married context at least, would take just one of the principles of today, right? And say, I- I'm going to focus on that for the next two months. I'm going to just seek to be the change. Or I'm going to actually get under the hood because all the lights are flashing, right? I-, I don't know what the principle is, but for all of us to choose that one principle and say, I want to focus on that. I want Jesus to work on me on that because I believe it is worth it. I believe it's worth it to grow, to learn, to adapt be humbled by the grace of God that has been shown to me. And from that, man, I can make an investment in another in a selfless and gracious way. Right now, I want to encourage everybody to bow their heads. And as you do, maybe there are those watching or those in this room where you're hearing about all this Jesus meets married life and you're hearing all these principles of Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. You're like, man, I don't follow him. I'm not a Christian. But today, maybe you feel the pull toward that. Like, you're like, maybe I want to follow this Jesus. In fact, Matt, I do want to follow this Jesus. Then that, for you, is a prayer. It's a prayer where you say, Jesus, I have missed the mark. I have crossed the line. I have sinned. But you came to rescue me from that, to give me a grace that I don't deserve, but I desperately need. Rescue me. Bring me into the family. Let me follow you, Jesus. You make that your prayer your way. He hears you. And we want to hear from you as well. In our app, we have a tile. You can click on that about you decided to follow Jesus. When you open your eyes here in a second, you'll see a a verse or a number on the screen that you can text and say, I decided to follow Jesus. We'd love to know that. 
because it really takes the power of Jesus and the Spirit so often to do many of the things we've talked about today. And for the rest of us, Jesus, we come before you and we know that we need your help. We need your strength. We need your resolve. And we ask you to do mighty things in us, especially in hurting places, in wounded places, in places where we feel very violated even maybe by our spouse. It's so beyond our strength and capacity. We need your strength. So help us and guide us and show us. We need you. We look to you. We love you, Jesus. In your good and perfect name, amen. Well, today is Communion Sunday which is awesome because I love the fact that the text about communion in 1 Corinthians comes just before the text about love because love is about union, right? That's what we're striving for in our marriages and that's what we're striving for as congregations and that's what Jesus affords us. And maybe some of you walked in here and you weren't a Christian, but now you are. What it means is, man, this is your first meal. This is like your first communion. If you made that your prayer, this is your time. Now, if you're just a spectator, hey, we are so stoked you're here, and you can just let these elements go past because for us it has deep personal meaning, and what Jesus has done for us is an acknowledgement and a remembrance of what Jesus has done for us, that he gave his life for us, that he shed his blood for us so that we can know him, walk with him, live for him, love him, and show others who he is through our lives. So right now, the team is gonna be passing out the elements. You can just hold these as they come by, and then after this song, we will all partake together.